Welcome to another episode here at the Midnight Founders Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today. This is AJ Rounds from Rev Road and Jake McCarg from CB Vault. Here at the Midnight Founders Podcast, we focus on telling behind the scenes stories for what makes a successful entrepreneur. We're excited for another week. Here we go. We're excited to be here for another episode of the Midnight Founders Podcast. We're here today with Chris Yaden with Sapria. How's it going, Chris? Really good. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you. Yeah, welcome, welcome. On this snowy day, we all braved the roads to get here, didn't we? Yeah, well, as it goes here in Utah this time of year, we'll take it. We'll take the water. We'll take the skiing or snowboarding in your case. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jake just rolled in off of the uh, slope, so no uh, no sympathy there. Yeah, man, it was deep today. <laughs> it was awesome. great. Some, Some of those days you dream it. about, yeah. Cool. Yeah, couldn't beat it. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, excited to learn more about uh, what you're working on right now and um, learn more about who you are and what your background is. But to get started, um, I'd love well, to hear. And one thing, too, if I, if I might add, we're excited to see kind of how the nonprofit world intersects a lot with the entrepreneur world, which we yep. talk about a lot. So this is going to be a cool connected. conversation. Yeah. yeah, for sure. We've been talking to a couple of nonprofits, excited to get a couple of them on the show. So you're our first one. We're excited to hear kind of how that plays in. And, and I have a little bit of a background knowing, uh, you know, the city side and how I feel like. I identified as an entrepreneur, even as a, you know, a city employee, because yeah. we were making a lot of changes and stuff like that. So, so I'm excited to hear your, your feedback and your opinion on that. Awesome. Um, but let's get started with the 30 second elevator pitch on what Sapria is and, and the problem you guys are trying to solve. Sure. Um, it's pretty simple to explain, but it is very, a very, very complex problem. So at Sapria, we exist and we work every single day to liberate both individuals and society, and both of those are very important, uh, from child sexual abuse and its lasting impacts. Child sexual abuse is a huge undercurrent in our society. It impacts a ton of things, and moving the needle on such a big issue takes a lot of innovation, takes a lot of entrepreneurship, takes a lot of effort, but that's what we're about every day, and we wake up every day ready to go to work. And it's not talked about enough, is it? No, it's not. It's it's still stigmatized. It's changing. It's changing as we speak. And I think you can see those winds changing over even the last five, 10 years. People are talking about it more. When I first started uh, at Sapria, uh, when we were first founding it eight years ago, uh, it was really hard to get people to talk about it. I'd go into a, a corporation and say, hey, uh, you know, can we talk to your employees or your customers? And, and that's I'd get a lot of, well, you know, that's it's really important, but I don't know if we can talk about that. That's pretty sensitive. Today, I get almost no no's. I get yeses all the time. And whether it's a podcast like yours that's willing to have us on and use your microphone, whether it's a corporation that wants to partner, it's the winds are changing and it's 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 awesome. And it's mainly awareness, what you're doing with those kind of partners. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you have all sorts of different things when you're engaging in, in partnerships. You have uh, awareness where you're doing partner marketing to get the word out. You have uh, funding as nonprofits. When we seek funding, we're, we work with a lot of partners to get funding, whether that's from their customer base, whether that's from their employee base, or they as a corporation. And corporations, frankly, have a huge megaphone and a f- huge channel for volunteers, which both are very, very important to nonprofits. Cool. Cool. So how, what exactly do you guys do to address this issue? 
Yeah, so we have seven services. I'm not going to go into detail and, and bore people to death, um, but I'll just give you kind of the quick quick piece. So those seven services are broken down into two categories. Uh, one category is we focus on helping people heal. So that's the lasting impacts that I was talking about, that part. The other thing we do is we help parents prevent or other primary caregivers prevent that sexual abuse from happening to their kids or prevent their kids from actually abusing others, which is more common than we, we like to we like to realize. So our, our services are broken down into those two main categories. They include both in-person services, where people actually come and consume services at a, as a, at a physical location. They also include a lot of digital services. So uh, a lot of uh, online services, webinar type services, uh, remote support group type services. Anyway, those, but those are the two main categories, both healing and prevention. So cool. That, uh, that prevention piece is critical if we're going to see change, isn't it? It is. So when you look at historical movements, say something as simple as car seat safety, right? How did we go from when I was a kid, not being in a seatbelt and probably hanging out the window to by the time I was a parent, there was no way my kid was not in a car seat. How did that happen? <laughs> How did that happen? That's called societal change. Yeah. And we're starting to get more and more research around how those movements happen. And we're applying that research to the issue of child sexual abuse as we speak, trying to pull those same macro levers that help move that needle uh, for a society. It, it can happen. There's hope. A lot of people say, you're never going to change this, but Think about if someone said that around uh, racial equity. You're never going to change it. Or what if someone said it around uh, something like smoking cessation? You're never going to move that needle. It's too big. It's glamorized in Hollywood. You know, it's the popular thing to do. It was in vogue for a long yeah. time. You know, if people have that attitude, uh, yeah, it's not going to change. But it takes social entrepreneurs to say, hey, this. I don't care how big it is. We can move this needle, and I'm going to apply the principles of social entrepreneurship to move the needle on this issue, and that's what we're working to do with child sexual abuse. So but, how did you land on uh, with this? Like, was How did you get to this point? Yeah. Uh, for me personally, it started in a relationship, as, a, as, as it of, often does, and this was with two of our founding board members, Derek and Shalane Maxfield. We had worked together in a previous startup. It was a tech startup nothing to do with nonprofit work. And uh, for various reasons and a story that's a little too long for today, they felt very, very strongly that uh, there needed to be a champion for the issue of child sexual abuse. There was lots of good work getting done, lots of local work, but there was no really big champion that was moving the needle on the issue. And we had had such a good working relationship in, in that previous startup that uh, they reached out to me and asked me if I'd come help them get it started. Uh, that was an easy yes for me, both because of the relationship I had with them, but also because child sexual abuse had impacted people I loved that were very close to me. And, and so it was very tangible to me. Uh, and those two worlds came together and we went to work. So that's kind of your why is um, you've, you've had direct impact from this topic and yeah. From this issue. Yeah, we have. And 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 here I'll just share a little thing that that your 
your listeners might find interesting. Um, most people have. They just don't know that they have. Um, sexual abuse is such a taboo topic. I have people that are extremely close to me that did not disclose that abuse until I was working in the industry. These are people I've known all my life. Wow. These aren't acquaintances. These aren't new friends. These are my closest relationships. Wow. And that is not uncommon. So people, they hear the statistics, one in five children are sexually abused by age 18, and they're like, how could that be? I mean, I know a lot of people, but I don't know that many survivors. The reality is they actually do. It's just the person doesn't disclose that they're, they're a survivor or they're dealing with this issue in their life. Uh, they may disclose other things that are related to it, but they don't disclose this. And it's interesting when you start talking about it, when you start being an, an advocate for the issue or even stronger as an activist for the issue, all of a sudden family members, coworkers, lifetime friends are like, hey, that's me. And you're like, how did I not know this? And so my experience is actually not that uncommon from what most people experience when they start getting involved in the issue. Interesting. Well, how did you, Chris, how did you, um, I mean, what, what did your journey look like starting out in, in your career? How, I mean, what were some of the, uh, you know, the milestones and things that you've accomplished that have now gotten you to, and the challenges, thing. I'd love to know <laughs> yeah, and challenges. milestones, but also like the challenges of starting a nonprofit. I'm really interested in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, fun, fun times, lots, so many good things, so many hard things. So my career, uh, college was, was retail, got my first management experience in retail. Coming out of college, I worked in a healthcare startup and I, I went in through the sales door but quickly promoted up to the GM and became that number two guy for the founder. A lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, as you know, they, they kind of have their number two person that helps complement uh, the areas where they have gaps or frankly the areas where they don't want to engage. And so I was that person uh, for this founder and we had a great experience uh, growing that company in healthcare uh, learned a lot of good lessons uh, around revenue and particular SaaS models and how to generate that recurring revenue in a meaningful way and the value of that revenue. Uh, then I moved into a software um, startup again where I was that number two guy. I was the president, uh, Derek Maxfield, who I mentioned as one of our founding board members at Sapria. This is when we worked together. He was the CEO. I was the president. I handled ops, uh, marketing, program management, uh, and sales. He handled uh, finance uh, and and software development, and then the day to day functions that CEOs ha handle. We worked really well together and um, grew that uh, grew that to a private equity exit, which was awesome. Then I took a little. How, eight, how long ago was that? Roughly? That would have been eighteen. Uh, all, uh, 10, almost 11 years, 11 years ago? No, 12 years ago. Got it. Cool. Quick math in my head. Congrats. There, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, and, and it was wonderful. It was a, it was a great experience and I'll share a couple lessons that you asked about from that. I'll share one lesson that was super valuable for me. Uh, then spent 18 months working uh, on a project for the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in their IT, IT group. 
um, as they were piloting, putting uh, tablets in the hands of missionaries, which now uh, their missionary force carries phones every day. So that was kind of the beginnings of that, helped support that project. And then I came and uh, helped start Supriya. Um, so that's kind of the journey. So I've been in startup my entire career, uh, early stage my entire career. It's, it's what I know. It's what I love. It's what gets me going. As it relates to nonprofit, just a few lessons. Um, if you're going to do nonprofit right, and this is where a lot of nonprofit leaders make the mistake, there are a few nuances that are different, but the majority of the business needs to be just like a for-profit business if you're going to truly have impact and if you're going to scale. You can do a lot of good without applying the principles, but if you want to have any sort of significant scale and impact, you have to apply for-profit business principles and entrepreneurial startup principles in order to grow it to scale. Um, you asked about a lesson learned. I'll just share one. Uh, this was uh, from my time at NetSteps, and uh, one of the business lessons I value more than anything. The private equity group had just come in. Uh, Derek and I had taken roles on the executive team. They brought in their own CEO. And the new CEO, as, as it sometimes goes, uh, when they come in, took the attitude of, hey, you guys got, kind of got lucky growing this. Now we're going to turn it into a real business. You know, that type of attitude as entrepreneurs get that. They get that all the time from people, right? Um, never, never <laughs> seen that in anyone. <laughs> right? So they kind of took that attitude uh, and, and we fought through it and we were going to stay for a certain period of time um, and help with that transition. Well, there was a piece of software that was under development that was really the right direction for the industry and the right direction for our company. And there came a decision point where there was pressure from the board the new board uh, that was formed, and pressure um, from that this new CEO has experienced as a result of that board to release this software at a certain time. And, and it wasn't ready. It just was not ready. And uh, Derek and I both expressed concerns around it. I remember that very vividly in our meetings. Um, but they kept pushing and pushing. You're probably putting and, it nicely because I'm sure the stress yeah, level is very high. Yeah, and and frankly, I won't speak for Derek's experience. He, he needs to speak for his own. But for me, I acquiesced. I didn't hold my ground. And that was the beginning to the end of a very successful company. When, when we had uh, the transition, it was a very profitable company. It was growing quickly had an excellent reputation in the industry we are in, and there was no 900-pound gorilla in that industry. We had every opportunity to become that. Uh, and, and that company not only didn't become that, but uh, I think it was another year, two years after Derek and I left, they had to shut their doors. And they had to shut their doors because, in my opinion, that piece of software got released too early. And I know it's not 100% my responsibility, but... Any, anybody with an entrepreneurial heart or a, uh, a senior leadership perspective takes 100% accountability when you acquiesce, right? When you don't stand and push. And I wish I had, stand, I wish I had stood my ground. I wish I, I had I pushed harder. Um, one of one, a great life lesson 
and an incredibly important business lesson for me. Wow. I'm sure it's hard though. Like in the, I mean, it's easy to look back and, and, uh, you know, knowing what you know now, and it's so hard in the moment. So that's really good advice to, you know, when your gut is telling you something to like stick with it. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's, that's really good advice. Is it because, uh, and, and I, I love this topic too. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, holding your ground to what you know is right. Um, is it because you didn't feel like you had the data to support your decision that you did acquiesce or why, why did you decide to, to stand down and to back off? Uh, if I'm being hundred percent honest, I was worn out, mm. right? We had, we'd been pushing, you know, uh, you work long hours, lots of midnights to the name of this podcast, <laughs> right? Uh, that transition didn't change that long hours. Um, I was, I was the executive that spent the most time customer facing. So I was fighting those battles in a good way with customers every day. I was tired. So it was the easier route essentially. Yeah. you know, and, and, and I knew I was transitioning and, but there's an integrity side that if I had just paused and, and, and just checked my integrity to say, it doesn't matter if I'm leaving, doesn't matter if I'm tired, what's right for the business. I should have made a different decision. I should have stood my ground. I really appreciate your honesty because I think Same. it would be super easy to look back on that decision and just I almost be prideful in it and say, look, we left. We were kind of forced out and the company failed because they didn't do what we said. Yeah. And so be, being honest and, and humble enough to look back at, with, with that introspection and realize that you probably could have made a difference um, had you stuck it out and pushed a little harder. I think that's really valuable and shows a lot to what your character is. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that shows us a lot of, yeah, your personality and character. You know, and the well interesting done. thing about that scenario is the vision was right. Even the software product that was being developed was right. It just wasn't ready. Mm. It wasn't ready for prime time. Which kind of goes against the philosophy, you know, Reed Hoffman is quoted on uh, from LinkedIn saying, hey, if you're not embarrassed by your first release, you're doing it wrong, right? Yeah. But this kind of goes... It must have been so early before, you know, it was ready that, uh, you know, even that saying doesn't apply in this instance. Yeah. And I think it depends a little bit on the product. Like in tech, if, if, if your, if your software is mission critical, critical infrastructure, which ours is, was, uh, you can't get that one wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're doing other types, other types of software where you have more flexibility, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big believer in in the the iterative process but when you're mission critical and in our case our customer sales force and customer base 100% relied on that software being solid uh, you you just don't have the luxury to so it's core it wasn't yeah. feature based it was core it, yeah interesting um fascinating so you and Derek uh have done multiple things together now um so I'm interested to hear what your opinion is on how important relationships are in a startup and, and how important it is to pick a good co-founder or to bring on an, uh, a partner in a business. Yeah. Um, that's probably a, even a better question for Derek. I'm going to answer it. But, you know, I'd say Derek picked me first. Um, and uh, it's been easy for me to pick him uh, once, once we'd worked together once. <laughs> Right when he asked me to come help start um, 
the charity. It was like I didn't even have to think twice. But it's it's to the point of your question because because the relationship was so solid, um, and Derek and I have a high high trust relationship. Interestingly, we were friends before we ever worked together. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I knew him for several years as a friend. Uh, we lived in the same neighborhood for a while, uh, long before we ever worked together. Um, and that, but back to that relationship piece that you're asking about, uh, that high trust um, relationship is removes so many barriers in working together. So. I'll tell you, when we started working together, there was a moment early on where I'm like, I'm with the right guy. And here's what happened. We were we were sitting in a meeting, and Derek said, hey, I think we ought to do X, Y, or Z. I don't even remember what it was. And it was one of the first meetings I was in as we were working together. And three or four guys on the team at all different levels of the organization just started pushing on him. And said, no, I think this, 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 right? So I first said, wow, the fact that they're pushing on them, that's impressive. That means we have a really good environment here. But what was more impressive is Derek said, hmm, I think what you said is right. I'm going to change what I think, and we're going to move in that direction. His willingness as the CEO to acknowledge uh, uh, the contributions of others to not have an ego to always be right was very, very powerful. And I, I, I already trusted him as a friend, but as, as working together in a business, that, that trust solidified that day. I was like, this guy gets it. We can work together. We could do anything together and be successful. I love that. Has the level of, I mean, cause there's been massive levels of success, right? Um, from, from that standpoint and, and yours as well, has that changed the relationship or the dynamic at all? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, uh, I'm a big believer that money doesn't change people. Money just enhances who you are. Love that saying. Already. Mm-hmm. And I think that's certainly the case for both Derek and Shalene Maxfield. I, I knew them before they had any type of significant wealth. And now that they have significant wealth, the people I knew then are the same people I know today. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I guess I guess for people that are good uh, as chameleons, they, they, they may change or appear to change. But my, my take on that is they, they're the same people they were before the success. Uh, you're, cool. just, you're just seeing it and they – they maybe don't have to be as much of a chameleon because of whatever they've achieved, but you're getting the real them. And when it comes to Derek and Shalane, the real them are very, very amazing people with very generous hearts uh, that uh, want to do good for the right reasons and, and do do good for the right reasons. And I've heard that a lot about them. So that's, that's cool that you say yeah. you second that, you know, um, uh, Chris, what, you know, being a, an entrepreneur podcast and focus on founders and, and startups and scaling companies, you've done that uh, and you're still kind of doing that with your nonprofit. What would you say are the most glaring parallels between the nonprofit world and the entrepreneurship world that you were kind of alluding to earlier? Um, it might be easier to list what's not a parallel. Um, 
So there's a few legal and financial aspects that are unique to nonprofit. Everything else, in my opinion, is parallel or should be. Uh, for a lot of charities, it may not be. One thing that we struggle with in our country uh, in, in nonprofit work is they attract people that have a heart for the work, often have a lived experience for the work. And so you have a lot of people that are founding charities that are very passionate but may not have the business skills or backgrounds to really develop out the work of that charity. So we have a lot of charities that do work every day, and we have no idea if that work's actually even impactful. As opposed to for-profit businesses, if you're not producing revenue, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty easy to tell. It's pretty easy to tell, right? You won't be around um, very long. You're not going to be there very long, but in charitable work, charities can exist for a long time and do exist for a long time without really having tangible proof that their solutions are wanted, needed, and, and effective. And they often rely in the charitable space on um, uh, anecdotal evidence. So there was one person that I helped that loved what I did, but the other hundred, I have no idea, or the other thousand or 10,000, I have no idea. And that, that poses a problem because there are even some cases where charities are actually doing damage to the people they're trying to help. Not intentionally, or at least rarely intentionally. But their services are not only ineffective, they're actually harmful to what they're trying to accomplish. But because they don't measure, because there's no revenue metric, the same controls. Yeah, really. yeah. The, that, that type of thing can happen. So... If a charity is run right, in my opinion, you are applying those business principles that drive to revenue. It's just we're, we're driving to impact. But the way we measure that impact is, is, is just as important as how you measure revenue. And, and our space is really maturing right now in this area. A lot of funders are absolutely requiring that charities they give to demonstrate impact. The same way a for-profit business investor would have to uh, re require a business to demonstrate uh, revenue or at least revenue capabilities. So with the um, – I'm interested to know what metrics you're using to kind of measure your impact. That's what I was just going to ask is what are your KPIs? Yeah. 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 So how are you applying that principle that you're talking about? Um and then also, well, let's start with that. And then I have right. a follow-up question. So um, when we talk about impact in the nonprofit space, we're talking both about numbers of people served, so we call them outputs, and the results of that service we call outcomes. So think outputs plus outcomes equals impact, right? So just give you a little equation there. I'll just take one of our services. We do a four-day in-person retreat program followed by nine-week asynchronous online course or adult women who are sexually abused as children. With third-party researchers out of the University of Michigan and, and Brigham Young University, we've evaluated the outputs and outcomes of that program. So the outcomes tell us this. On average, after 12 months, a woman who went through that program experiences a 37% reduction in post-traumatic stress symptoms and a 45% increase in overall well-being. We've had 4,500 women go through that program. 4,500 women with those type of metrics equals impact. Does that make sense, how yeah. we measure? Interesting. And to just kind of help your, your listeners take those numbers and make sense of it, I'll just, I'll just share this quick anecdote. 
imagine being an adult woman and you're you're leaving work and stopping by the grocery store. You're going down the aisle doing doing your thing and someone walks by you and smells like the person that abused you 20 years ago. The way your brain works when you have post-traumatic stress is it interprets that situation as dangerous. Cognitively, you know that's not your perpetrator, but your your survival systems in your brain don't interpret it that way. So you go into a fight, flight, or freeze mode and, and maybe go into a panic attack right there in the grocery store. That's what post-traumatic stress looks like. And for individuals that are experienced post-traumatic stress, that's their day-to-day life. They experience these types of things regularly. So when we talk about reducing by 37%, what we're saying is, those type of experiences are happening 37% less than they were before they engaged in our program. When we talk about the well-being indicators, these are things like how well do I cope when it does happen? So when we say those are increasing by 45%, what we're saying is, okay, we're reducing by 37%, but when they do happen, people that come through our program are 45% better equipped to deal with them when they happen. And when you take the, those combinations, it is literally life-changing for these women. That's the most common thing the women say is, it has changed my life. It fundamentally changes their day-to-day experience when they experience those type of outcomes. So you take those type of outcomes plus the number of people that you're able to serve, and that's impact. I love that you've made it very formulaic, and it's, it's science-driven. Yeah, definitely. Really smart. It's impressive that you have, like, I mean, what you said, a lot of nonprofits kind of shoot by the hip or they're, you know, but it's impressive that you have those metrics and then that you can articulate it so well as well. Yeah. So. Well, we have an awesome team that makes makes me look good, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Um, so how big is Sapria and, and um, what are your funding mechanisms? Yeah, so... We are based, uh, we, we use an east-west model in the U.S., so we have offices in Alpharetta, Georgia, just north of Atlanta, and in Lehigh here in Utah. Uh, we function uh, by delivering our in-person services uh, near those two locations. We have our retreats that, the one here in Utah happens up Hobble Creek, the one in Georgia is just at the beginning of the Appalachians there in the North Georgia Mountains. Um, so those those are our homes. We have about ninety staff uh, that that operate between the two, and ninety for a for profit business isn't. It's it's pretty early stage for a nonprofit. We're like an old dinosaur. You're a unicorn, <laughs> <laughs> which is interesting, right? Nonprofits tend to t- stay very very small, um, and that goes to the second part of your question, which is funding. Um, most nonprofits if they do have effective services, struggle to scale because most nonprofits rely on uh, very difficult to obtain funding. Generating a fundra- funding and fundraising, in my opinion, has been significantly more difficult than generating revenue in for-profit business. Because in, in for-profit business, you have an exchange, you have a value exchange. And you do to some degree in fundraising as well, but the value you're delivering as a charity to the donor is... Uh, fulfilling their altruistic desires to do good. And people have a tough time parting with their money, even for something as valuable as that. So our funding model uh, includes um, uh, funding from from private sources. 
family foundations, corporations, uh, individual donors, so individuals of high net worth. Um, you have your high volume and, and, you know, the tech community will resonate with this. So think a $5 a month monthly donor. It's our recurring revenue. It's our SaaS model. Yeah. Right. That we use. So your $5 a month donor, that stuff adds up fast. So you take all these revenue sources together, add in some legacy giving for those that, you know, bequeath, uh, gifts, uh, upon death, uh, and you you put together this revenue package. So we use revenue streams just like a for-profit business. We call them revenue streams, and we work them as independent revenue streams. So cool. What what would you say, Chris? Is and you don't obviously have to use names. I'm sure you can't. But what's what's the most impactful story that you've seen at Sapria that just tugged at your heartstrings? I'm gonna I'll, I'll share one. Uh, you're you're asking me to get emotional, which is okay when it comes to this topic <laughs> happens. I'm gonna, we have some tissues here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to share one um, that to me means a lot. I don't know if it's our most impactful, but it it just it means a lot to me personally. Early on in our our company's um, <clears throat> start, we were doing some education classes for parents uh, to help teach them how to reduce the risk of sexual abuse. And one of those parents came to one of those classes and brought their teenage daughter. Uh, and they live right here in in Lehigh, Utah, uh, here in Utah County. And, you know, she largely was checking out, as teenagers tend to do. But she picked up a, a few really important things along the way. <clears throat> um, and it wasn't long after that. She was at a high school football game and left with one of her friends to go grab a bite to eat. And during the course of that, he said, um, you're not, I'm not going to give you the food until you basically make out with me, were the terms that, that she uses. Uh, he wanted to do a lot more than that. Um, he pulled behind uh, a, uh, a school and attempted to assault her, uh, sexually assault her. And she said, in that moment, she remembered what she learned in that class and was able, because of that, to intervene in that assault and stop what was happening, including reaching out to a friend um, uh, and, and using her own voice to say no to this, this boy that was attempting to assault her. She didn't avoid the assault completely. He was pretty aggressive. But she uh, she she avoided a much more severe situation. And I remember her um, coming up to to a group of us that were talking and just think think, think this 18-year-old girl at this point just expressing her gratitude for our work. Um, that's what it's all about, right? Wow. That's those type of moments are, are, uh, really, really change who you are as a person and make it really easy for me to wake up in the morning. It's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. It's almost one of those things where you, you wish everyone could go through that training just for that reason, for that prevention element. Yeah. That and they provides. can, we have that service. Great. And it's 
highly scalable. Okay, so how do we, how do, like, <laughs> let's hear leading. how they get, <laughs> how do they get there? Yeah, I mean, I've talked a little bit about some of our in-person services, which, you know, limit in, in scale, but we have a lot of digital services that are infinitely scale, scalable uh, outside of language translation. So, um, which, by the way, we, ha- we do have them in English, French, Spanish, and German, so we do have four languages. But um, uh, if you, they go to sapria.org, S-A-P-R-E-A.org, uh, they're going to find both prevention and healing resources. Uh, the prevention side, the one we were ta- just talking about, is called community education. And people can go on there and just consume it right off the website, but they can also, if they want to be a community advocate, can uh, learn how to present that curriculum to their community, whatever that community is. Could be a employee resource group at work. Could be, uh, you know, a, a church congregation. It could be the the school PTA. And we've designed the curriculum such that we, as the professionals, deliver the important professional competency, and the individuals, the volunteers, the advocates that. Uh, are there to facilitate it are truly just facilitators. They don't have to be experts in the topic to facilitate it. So it, it's all available on our website. It's all free due to the generosity of our donors. And whether you're, we've had grandmas go on that want to teach it to their kids and grand, grandkids. We've had school resource officers that want to go engage in, in a school setting. We've had nurses. We've had um, uh, church leaders of various faiths uh, engage in it. It's it's a it's a, an excellent service, and there's a lot of our other services there too that are all digital, all digital and all scalable. Um, so we encourage people to have at it. That's what it's there for. How do people take part of the in person? Yeah, so the in person it all starts on our website. That's where they go and okay. request an application. So we have an application process that's mainly to ensure that it's the appropriate intervention based on where where they're at in their healing. We have services for the continuum of care for most everything a survivor goes through except for that that crisis period. We're not the right spot for them if they're in crisis. Like if they uh, just went through a suicide attempt, they need to stabilize before our services are appropriate for them. Or or let's say that they are uh, trying to detox. Uh, from a, a substance until they've detoxed and stabilized, we wouldn't be appropriate. So we have an application intake process that they go through to just make sure that it's it's the right time in their healing journey to, to engage. All right, Chris, this has been so cool. Is there anything else you want to tell the audience here, uh, you know, from yourself personally or from the viewpoint of your organization that would be helpful that we did not cover today? Yeah, there's, there's a message I always love to share when I get asked a question like this, and it's a message directly to those that are survivors of child sexual abuse, which statistically you'll have a good number of your listeners that are. And the message is really simple. Um, hope and healing are possible. And I know it doesn't feel like it sometimes, but hope and healing uh, are possible. And uh, we will provide the tools you put in the work and you can heal, and you are not broken. I know you feel broken sometimes, and may even describe yourself as broken, but you are a capable human being full of all sorts of goodness. And a little lift, a little help from us or others uh, will go a long way to helping you feel whole again. And then the last, the last thing, the third thing I'd like to tell you as survivors, 
is that there are people that do care. Uh, a lot of survivors bury this. You may be burying it if you're a survivor. Uh, there are people that care. We're here to support you. We believe you. And uh, we're, we'll go to work with you to, to remove this burden. So cool. Chris, this has been really uh, impactful and enlightening and, and helpful for us to understand this important topic. And thank you for being awesome. here today. Thanks for, for having me. out with us. Super yeah, thank cool to you. be here. Good luck with everything. Thank you. The Midnight Founders Podcast is a podcast about entrepreneurship that is hosted by CB Vault and Rev Road. CB Vault is the entrepreneur arm of Central Bank. And Rev Road is a venture services firm where companies come to grow. Thanks for listening to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is AJ and Jake signing out.